Let me pray for Actually, turn, if you would, to Exodus 21. That's what we'll spend, a good, Exodus 21 through 24 is what we'll spend a good bit of time this morning. So as y'all do that, let me, let me pray for us. Well, Father, we look to you as the one who has graciously and lovingly adopted us and forgiven us and redeemed us and brought us into covenant with yourself. And we thank you for the new covenant and for Christ who fulfilled all the law on our behalf, who is the righteous one, the holy one, who through repentance and faith, his righteousness has become ours. Our sin has been put on him and borne away. And so we thank you for those precious truths of the gospel. We also thank you for the law that you used to drive us to Christ. We thank you for your righteousness and all the expressions of your righteousness that are contained and made visible through the law. We praise you for your justice and your love for justice and your concern with your people being just because you will certainly judge the entire world Injustice. And so we pray that you would use those truths and doctrines of the scripture to help us think carefully about rules and law and right and wrong in our homes as we teach and train our children, as we love our children, as we um, care for our children and discipline our children, that it would be out of love for you and love for them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, right, wrong, and rules. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Because there's a vital place for these things in the training of children. You know, this isn't necessarily the topic we like to talk about. At least I hope we don't like to talk about it too much. But yet, it's a really important topic. Because right and wrong and rules in the training of children is really important. Psalm 89, 14 Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Just to think about that a minute. Righteousness, justice, that those are the foundation of his throne. That's what his judgments are based upon. His decrees are based upon. And what that means is I think our children need to know what righteousness and justice mean. And we don't usually come into the world knowing what they mean or appreciating what they mean. We, when do we usually care about justice? When we've been wronged, yeah, then, then really care. But when we get the upper hand of that, of injustice, when injustice profits us, especially as a six-year-old, as a seven-year-old, do we usually notice, do we usually care? No, someone has to teach us that. The Lord is holy, 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 Isaiah 6. And that means we need help understanding what does holiness mean. So we can help our children understand what does holiness mean. Same, you know, the scripture is going to say the whole law is fulfilled in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.14. Paul's going to say, all the law is fulfilled in that one word, love. 
Jesus is going to say it all along the prophets are summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbors yourself. And what that means is the law itself in Scripture is a great expression of what love looks like. Just that God would start in Genesis 2 with Adam and would say, okay, of all these trees of the garden, you can eat freely. But what? Just not this one. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. There's, in other words, there's something right out of the gate that God is expressing and revealing about himself through the law. And something that is important in the whole redemptive story of the Bible, that law plays a role. And so that's some of what we're going to talk about this morning is how do you use right, wrong rules, law in your home to the right end rather than the wrong end. We need to give our children something to rebel against. That's something I say to parents sometimes. Make sure to give them something to rebel against because that plays a part. There's a reason God did it with Adam and Eve. There's a reason in our homes, like we don't want it so laissez-faire, so ruleless, that our kids can be rebels and never know it because it's just never exposed. It's never tested. So we need to give our children something to rebel against, something to expose their lawless hearts, something to reveal their need for a savior, something that will help them begin to see by God's grace that someone has to fulfill the law in their place. Someone has to forgive their sins against the law. They need someone to impute to them, count to them, a righteousness that they just don't have. And rules and law can can all serve that purpose when used well. Which is where I want to begin with these general comments on the importance of law. Because under the new covenant, Christ fulfills the law on our behalf. And when he did, the old covenant was rendered obsolete. We just didn't need it anymore. But the law, though fulfilled, remember, wasn't rendered obsolete. Like in one sense, the law was fulfilled in Christ. But in another sense, the law still plays a role. There's times in Paul's writings where he speaks in a negative sense of the law, using rules and law to achieve righteousness or acting as if we're still under the old covenant. There's other places where Paul speaks of the law that he speaks very positively. One of those is in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, where Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And I would say that's what the goal for this morning is, is to think as parents, what does it mean to use the law lawfully in our house? in our household, in our families. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Isn't it interesting that that he starts at law, ends with gospel, and he sees a relationship between those two. 
The law is good if one uses it lawfully. And as we'll see later today, in it, God uses it as a servant to salvation, as something that fits somewhere into his plan for people seeing their need for the gospel and believing it. And so when we bring children into the world, though hard to believe, they, they occupy the category lawless and disobedient. So what Paul isn't saying is, okay, the law is for the really bad kids. But a lot of you, I mean, if you've got good kids, they don't really need it. That's not what he's saying. When he says, no, it's for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, who's he talking about? Every unregenerate person on earth. How all of us come into the world. He's saying, yeah, that's, that's who the law is for. It does something. It works in some way. It serves a purpose. Yeah, it's for those who would strike their fathers and mothers if they had strength and courage to do it. Now, we, we hear that and go, well, that would never be my kid. And true, they might never strike us, but what he's getting at is there's something, there's a little mom and dad hitter in all of us. And we probably don't remember it when we were four or five. But maybe your parents would. Hey, mom, dad, was there ever a moment where it looked like, man, if I could, I would just have slapped you? And I bet some of our parents go, oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, you were just six months old. And you were there, and I was feeding you. And there's just this look in the eye. I think, I think you want to kill me. Remember Augustine, that was in his confessions. I would have strangled my mother while nursing at her breast if I had the strength to do so. That was his reflection of the sin nature and depravity, even as an infant. And so we don't remember necessarily that, but yet Scripture helps us see that, yeah, when we come into the world, that's what's in us. And so the law is good, though it cannot make us good. This is really important as we think about the right use of the law, the right use of rules and right and wrong in our homes, that those can be good rules, but they won't make your kids good. Because we put that with the last week on the heart because they can't change the heart. They do expose the heart, but they can't change it. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. So what I'd like us to do in this next section on the right use of the law is just go through, okay, what are seven uses of the law that I think Scripture gives us? And these are seven right uses of the law that it gives us in general, just in the church, in life, in the world. And so how might we apply that to parenting? How might we, in keeping with this idea of the right use of the law, see that fleshed out in our homes? And so we'll just walk through seven right uses of the law, and we'll use Exodus 21 through 24 as a bit of a guide, <clears throat> some of the rails that we'll walk on. Because here God is going to redeem his people out of Egypt by Moses, he's going to bring them out to Sinai, and there he's going to enter into covenant with them. Okay, I just redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb. I just delivered you with my signs and wonders to take you as a people for myself. And now we're going to enter into covenant and then and hear the terms of that covenant. 
this old covenant. And the terms are going to be, you're going to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm going to give you 613 examples. And, I'm, and you're going to be my possession. I'm going to love you, care for you, be with you. And so fascinating that now the household of God is forming. God as the redeemer and father of this people. And he gives them rules. Again, because he knows he's not, he didn't redeem sinless people. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a need for redeeming. So the first right use is a framework of righteousness, which reveals the essence of justice, you'll see there in your notes, of what it means to deal honorably with God and neighbor. Our kids won't just figure that out on their own. They'll have to be taught what is the essence of justice. What does it mean to deal honorably with your neighbor, honorably in relation to God? And I say framework of righteousness because it doesn't say everything that it could possibly say about everything. Has your kid, kids ever looked at you and said, well, that, I didn't know that was a rule. Okay, well, you've been around here long enough, and you've heard enough examples of our rules to know that just because we didn't say, don't steal their Legos, we hadn't actually ever said that, that that isn't a rule. In the same way, we're meant to sort of look into the law of God and get the point, what the essence of justice is. Look at Exodus 21, verse 22. When men strive together, so two guys are fighting, one of their wives probably, a pregnant woman is there, so that her children is hit, or she's hit, and her children come out. It's, it somehow triggers labor. And her child or children come out of her womb. But there's no harm. Meaning the, she's okay physically. The children are okay physically. The one who hit her shall surely be fined. There'll be a fine just for that. As the woman's husband shall impose on him. Now what that doesn't mean is he just gets to make up a fine. And that's clarified by the next phrase. And he shall pay as the judges determine. So there were judges involved, and this would come before them. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In other words, if this sends her into premature labor, and that child dies, life for life. It's actually one of the many verses in Scripture you look to to go, okay, God thinks that child in the womb is a human being. And it's life for life. And what this isn't, is it's not a framework for personal retaliation. I think we're meant to see that in the context. Jesus is even going to quote from that passage in Matthew 5, 38 through 42, just to clarify what God means. And so on a personal level, Jesus is going to say, we turn the other cheek. But on a community level, there's to be justice. There's to be those that are entrusted with the responsibility for restitution, for just penalties. But I think the application on a family level, what it means, okay, parents, as parents, we're there to help carry out what does justice really look like? Remember years ago, yeah, one of our children decided they wanted to do a really um, significant jump on a scooter, and we had a number of scooters, and they thought, you know what, this could really hurt the scooter, so I don't want to use mine. I'll use my siblings. And so just to do this trial run. So sure enough, they did the jump, 
broke the scooter and thought, oh, well, well, now I know not to use mine for this. And what this framework for righteousness shows is, okay, we're going to sit down and talk about what does justice mean here? What does restitution mean? What is, okay, you took your sibling's thing and used it in a way that you knew would probably damage it. That's why you didn't use your own. And now it broke. And walking through, okay, now what does that mean for your scooter? What are you to do with it? And there's different laws even on that. Yeah, you, if you, you give him your scooter and you, take, you get his, the one you broke is now yours. Now, there's no verses in the Bible on scooters, right? But they're on, there's, they're, they're, they're on cows, on cattle, on sheep. And so we're meant to see the connection, that there's a framework for righteousness there. That now we're concerned as parents, okay, how are we preparing our kids for this world where God's law matters? And where he has an opinion about what justice is. And that doesn't have to be mean, it's not punitive, it's not in anger, it's just very lovingly and matter of fact. And you can usually sit with that six-year-old, seven-year-old to say, well, let's reverse it. What if he or she did that to you? Because the law gets there, right? Love your neighbor as what? As yourself. And some of that is, okay, love them as you would want them to love you. Be concerned for them as you would be concerned for yourself. So there's a logic to the law of God, a way to apply justice that upholds the dignity of people, holds wrongdoers responsible, and even based upon the intentionality of their actions. Like there's, it's different when it's unintentional, it's accidental. If, hey, can I borrow your scooter? Yeah, sure, go for it, and they do it, and there's an accident, and there's damage. That that would be different. And even you see that in Scripture where some of how the law is designed is to get a sense of intentionality. Like if this killing was premeditated, that's very different than there was just a blow up. They started wrestling. One of them fell, hit their head on a rock, and died. And the Bible made, okay, allowances depending on what it was. And so we think about that in our homes, okay, that when there's willful intention... And that's why we'll get to it with discipline. There were certain categories that Ruth and I had that I think every couple has to come up with. Okay, what are sort of spankable offenses? And one was willful harm to another person. Like if there was a, a blatant disregard and a clear intention, like that's going to raise to a certain category. We want you to feel this in a different way than if it was an accident. Because it's very different sort of, you know, thinking as a family about, okay, what are the results of weakness or just error versus the results of sin? And how we think about that and talk about that's going to be different. Number two, a right use of the law gives a portrait of God. <clears throat> it reveals something about his nature. The absolute splendor of holiness, the authority of his judgments. Just that he loves justice, that says a lot. You go to a lot of other religions in the world and whatever gods they worship don't really love justice. He cares about people. He values human life. We've already seen that. He looks out for the vulnerable. And he wants us to do the same. 
So in the law, God is telling us what he loves and hates, what is right and wrong to him. Yeah, look at Exodus twenty-two eighteen. You shall not permit a sorcerer, sorceress to live. So with our kids, this isn't about, all right, kids, anytime you find a sorceress, put them to death. No, this is about, okay, God is saying something here about what he loves and what he hates and how you're to think about witchcraft. It's not a game. Next verse, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. And again, that's just, that gives a portrait of God as holy and exalted and worthy of worship and nothing else should be given the glory that he receives. So in the law, it's giving, just in those examples, this portrait of God and splendor and all the other laws are doing the same. Where by the time you're done reading them and thinking about it, you're going, okay, you're getting here a picture of God. And that's something we want to do in our homes is help our kids connect that. Like the reason for some of the rules we have aren't just like convenience to make stuff work. No, we want you to see that when we have rules about this way of conducting yourself with siblings, this way of conducting yourself with neighbors, this way of receiving instruction from your parents, this way of approaching school, that all of those are just giving little tastes of God in holiness and splendor. That false worship and sorcery required a different response because they disparaged the character of God more deeply. That's what it's getting at. There are degrees of evil. And so when we hear the law of God even, we're meant to stand back and it's meant to help us worship because it's revealing something about who he is. Now, you might not get that from, okay, bedtime is 8 p.m. Well, why, Mom and Dad? Well, the glory of God. That's sometimes a harder to get to. It's okay to have rules because... Okay, this is how we're going to operate as a family. Now, it will help all of us love each other more. I do remember telling our kids that. Why do we have to go to bed now so that we love each other more? That's the main goal. We're going to love each other more once you're in bed. We're going to all love each other more tomorrow. It's all to help us love God and each other. That's So a portrait of God. Thirdly, a mirror of humanity. There's something even in the law that it reveals something about our nature, something about our disposition, our loyalties. So when God says, okay, don't covet, that's like number 10, don't covet. We're meant to hear that and go, okay, I must be disposed to coveting, just that he would say that. We tend to read different laws and rules and go, man, I wonder if a day will come when I need that. Or I'll just need it in that day when I'm actively feel like I am. Rather than, okay, that's a cue right up front that this is, this is a human struggle. This is something I'm meant to guard against. This is something that's meant to, I'm meant to notice. That's meant to bother me. It just puts the mirror right up. The law tells us not to murder. And it says it a lot of different ways. Which means I'm meant to go, okay, by nature in my heart, then I'm a murderer. It's not God saying, you know, I'm going to put this rule out there because there's about 5 or 6% of the human population that are murderers. Right? Jesus clarifies that if, 
If you're angry with your brother or sister without cause, you've, you've committed murder. That's the spectrum. It's on it. James 4, you crave and want and don't get, and so you commit murder. And of course, James, he's not talking about they're like stabbing each other in the church services in Jerusalem. No, he's talking about in here. You want something, you don't get it, and you hate them for it. So even when Scripture says, thou shalt not murder, we're going to go, okay, that's in me. And, and as we walk through those things with our kids even, it's, all right, kids, this isn't about just making you feel bad all day and depressed, but it's so you can be alert and aware. This is a mirror to you. Like, this is in there. And in those moments when you have that anger, that rage toward a sibling, toward a friend over X, Y, Z, you're going to see that's that part of you stirring up. First murder in the Bible are two brothers. It's the very first generation born on the earth. And that's not by accident. We're meant to see this is how the sin nature leans. And so God just takes the law and just throws it up like this big mirror. And then he puts a bunch of other mirrors, so it ends up being about 360 degrees of mirrors where you can't escape. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. That's, that is a value of the law. Like when the law is used rightly, every mouth shuts up because you realize, oh, I'm accountable to God. So the law of God shows me who I am as a sinner, holds me accountable to God for it. Just listen to this. Look at Exodus 23.10. Exodus 23.10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard, with your olive orchard. Even every year you are not to sort of harvest up to every edge of every field and every corner. You are meant to be sloppy in your harvesting so that a bunch would be left. Why would, God have us, why would God have them do that? I'm sorry? So those who need it can get it. But what does it also say about me as the farmer? What's going to be my tendency? My crops, my stuff, and what? When you put that mirror up and God just says, hey, yeah, don't glean everything. Leave some of it for others. What does that immediately reflect from God to me about me? That my tendency is going to be what? Yeah, just to look at just stinginess. Just to look after myself, to not think about anybody else, to see it. No, this is mine. This is for me. So again, it's a way in which it provides a bit of a mirror to say, God has to write those kind of laws in there because we just won't take care of each other without it. That's just not 
our disposition. We will go back over that field 19 times and make sure we got every single grain. And God's saying, no, you need to think about others. You need to leave it for others. Do you, do you find as parents you have to spend much time helping your kids with that? Think about others. Notice others. When you make decisions and take action, think about how, how does this trickle down to the next person? Or how might you go about this in a way that leaves room for someone else to be blessed or encouraged or helped? I mean, I think about it. The conviction I feel here is like for time. How many of us glean the fields of our time right to the edge? Where when needs arise, we just have nothing. Like we have no margin. No financial margin, no time margin, no energy margin, no emotional margin. And so there's a principle here that applies in every area of a life, just how do we leave margin for all the things we don't see coming, for the needs that may arise, for the service that God may call on us for, to love our neighbor. Yeah, verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest and the son of your servant woman, and the alien may be refreshed. Again, we read those words, and what does that reflect to us? We read it, and what do we need to realize about ourselves just by reading that verse? What's our tendency? Not rest. Not rest. Just overwork. Overwork other people that we're in charge of. Just push, push, and not take time both for us to rest and to allow the people around us even to rest. But also, John, I think that you see the control there, right? That our tendencies toward controlling our environment, we don't trust yeah. that the Lord can provide, will provide, yeah. can take care of us. Therefore, we work to do that for ourselves. Yeah, so just the, the mirror of, okay, self-sufficiency will be my inclination. Life in my own hands. Yeah, not, yeah, I love that, trusting God with provision in order to have, like, every week, make sure there's just a day where there's just, it's just worship, it's just rest, it's just enjoying God. Now, there may be others who, again, go, well, their tendency is going to be more toward laziness. But that can lead to just, again, can be another kind of self-sufficiency. But either way, we can go through, the whole, go through the whole law and just see how does it show something about ourselves. So some of what we're doing in our homes with rules and with right and with wrong is like we're putting something in front of our kids to help them begin to see what's going to be their tendency, what's going to be their struggle. As we'll look at it a little bit, where are their real needs for rescue going to be? Number four, a distinguisher of peoples. God has always used the law to that end, a revealer of God's covenant community, something that set them apart from the idolatrous, lawless nations. Now, yeah, dietary codes serve that role. They don't serve the same role for us because those dietary codes help set the people of Israel apart from all the cult practices of the nations, of all the Canaanites. And that's one reason why we're not constrained to dietary codes today, because the, Lord, the way the Lord distinguishes his people today is different. How does he distinguish us today from the world? 
Through the Holy Spirit. How else? Through our love for one another. That's a mark that he uses. Baptism, local church. So there's a way in which just regeneration, filling of the Holy Spirit, gathering into the local church. And then are there ways in which we live now that are distinct, that should be distinct, that should be set apart? Yes. And so that's why it's really important, even as we're parenting our kids, that we don't just say, okay, well, yeah, kids, we don't live that way. Like, yeah, no, no, we, we're going to be different in this way without connecting it to, and here's why. Because in Christ, God is trying to make us a distinctive people set apart and sanctified and not so we'll just judge the world and be condescending but so that we would be marked by our love by the purity of worship and that that would be a light that God uses to draw others in so there's a way in which we want the rules of our home the law of our home if you will to help us be distinct in our love for God and love for each other Number five, a sampling of love, revealing the beauty of love in action. Because the whole law, Jesus is going to tell us, is summed up in two basic commandments. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as you already love yourself. And that every rule of the law was a variation on those themes. Love the Lord your God, for example. Love your neighbor, for example. And the Old Testament law gave them 613 examples. It, why not six million? I mean, he thought that was... Now, we can read the Bible and go, man, that's a lot of laws. The United States has 20,000 laws on the use of firearms. 20,000 laws just on the use of firearms. In other words, the United States legal code has millions of laws, if you add it all. In other words, there's no one more loving and less legalistic than God when it comes to these things. I mean, it's amazing how we'll look at it and go, man, 613, my goodness. Like, well, have you looked at the tax code? And, what, and why is the tax code so extensive? I mean, even when you think about that, you look at all, well, because every code is there for a reason. And every year they add to it. Why? What does the IRS realize? My goodness, people are creative in how they'll get sneaky and get out of paying taxes. Loopholes, loopholes. And every year, oh, another loophole, close that. Another. In every area of law in the United States system, it's based on how do we close loopholes for sinful people to do sinful things. Now, that's not always the case. There's lots of sinful laws as well. But the point being, in what God gives us in the law is just, okay, here's a sampling of what love could look like, of how it could be expressed. Exodus 22, verse 5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution for the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. Now, who needs a law like that? We'll see it in a little bit in the next point. 
Because what, what, sh- what should we be thinking? Okay, my, my cow got out, it grazed over their whole field. And then I go get the cow, bring it back. What should a righteous impulse be? Okay, I need to make that right. I need to pay for it. But what God is saying is, yeah, but that's not your impulse. Your impulse is, oh, whoops. I wonder who left the gate open. And so God actually has to tell us, like, no, here's what love does. If your neighbor's ox wanders out and comes down to your yard, you don't get to keep it. Like, that's a law. You have to take it back. Exodus 23, 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who are poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Do you love that? How many of you think about the law as compassionate? So that's why we have to read scripture carefully and see those cues that we tend to think of law as suffocating, law as burden, law as shameful, law as guilt-inducing, rather than law as compassion. As this is me helping you see what compassion for your neighbor looks like. Love for others. And we ha- it's really important that we help our kids see that connection. Kids, these rules and laws, this is about compassion. This is about loving others. This is about, again, putting that mirror up in front of ourselves to see how not loving I naturally am and to show me what love looks like, what a sample of it may be. Now, God is going to say, okay, if an ox gets out, comes down to your yard, you can't keep it. Do you think he means only an ox? That's the only thing that falls under finders, keepers, losers, weepers? Or are we meant to see that and extrapolate or anything else? I'll never forget going to yeah, 16th birthday. My mom and dad took me to a movie, Hunt for an October. So we're, going, we're coming out of the movie, and I look down on the ground in the parking lot, and there's a $20 bill. And I reach, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, it's my birthday. It's birthday money from Jesus. It's like the Lord is so kind. I reach down, and I pick it up. And I'm about to put it in my pocket, and my dad's standing there and go, what are, what are you going to do with that? I said, well, I mean, the question itself was troublesome to me that he would start that way. But, but well, I'm, I mean, I'm going to, and I just had my reasons why. It's, it's just out here. It's laying here. It's, I'm going to keep it. Well, um, is that yours? I'm like, well, well, no, but we don't know whose it is. He said, well, we know whose it isn't. Well, what do you want me to do? I mean, what do I do with it? He said, "Well, I bet you know. Look, what are we? We're right outside something. Where are we?" He said, "Well, we're right outside the movie theater. Well, do you think someone coming in out of the movie theater probably dropped it?" Yeah, that's possible. Or it could have blown from the desert. <laughs> like there's. So he said, "Well, I guess you could take it into them there at the booth and hand it to him. Say that you found it out in the parking lot. So that if somebody comes back to look for it, it would be there." I said, well, they might just keep it. 
He said, well, that's their conscience, isn't it? And just walked through. I mean, it was a battle just in me. And I had, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? But my father had one defining principle that was guiding that entire conversation. And what does love mean here? And we know it isn't yours. And we know it certainly belongs to somebody else. And what other people do downstream, that's on them. That's their conscience. What about, what about yours? And so there was, that would be an example of just taking Exodus law and in a parenting moment sort of applying it to, okay, here's a $20 bill you just found that isn't yours. What's, what is the compassionate response? What's the loving response? If it was your money, what would you want somebody to do with it or to put it? And so again, it doesn't have to be punitive or mean or suffocating, but it's na- helping our kids navigate. What does it mean to relate to God and neighbor in this life? In all the details of his life. And navigate these various ethical dilemmas anchored by love God, love neighbor. For example. For example. And when you go through the laws, and that... And that's where it's, it can be a great exercise. You sit with your kids and you read through some, some of those texts and go, okay, this was about oxen. We don't have any oxen, but what would be other examples of what this principle that God is really getting at would be applied to? Sixthly, a diagnostic of sin. Law is this wonderful diagnostic of distinguishing right from wrong, good from evil, removing all claims of self-righteousness. This is where we started earlier with 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and he just throws this in, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I love that. Paul will do that. He'll just give you this list and go, oh, yeah, and anything like that. Which means, okay, that's a wide net. That covers a lot of terrain. He's saying what the law is there for is to give us a diagnostic for sin. It's an x-ray machine. It's a CAT scan. And when that scans you, how much cancer do you see? How many dots are there on that? internal picture of yourself. Why is that helpful? Think about it. If if you're going into a hospital to get tests, why is it helpful that they can see inside you? So yeah, you know what what is your real condition in there because you can't see in there. But they do this x-ray and now all of a sudden they can see things inside you that you can't see. And help you identify, okay, there's sickness there for you to get help. And probably not many of us want to go to a doctor that goes, well, you look okay. I guess it's all right. None of us, I think, want that. If there's something wrong, I think we want them to be able to identify it. Well, God, just this loving, great physician just puts this x-ray up in front of us and goes... Here's what's wrong. It makes it undeniable. There's just cancer. 
Things like whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Exodus 21, 17. And Paul really builds on this in Romans 7 when he says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Also Paul's going to say, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't have known what sin was. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So something about that, again, that's the, it just throws it up as a diagnostic. I just wouldn't have known if God hadn't put that in front of me. And that's what I mean by in our homes, we, again, we don't want legalism. We don't just want rules for the sake of rules. But you want to give enough for your kid to get the picture that something's wrong. Something is deeply wrong. And so we don't want to be afraid of that hard conversation when your child comes to you in tears just going, Dad, Mom, something's wrong with me. Like, I, I, need, I, don't, know what, I don't know how to stop this. Because there's something in all of us as parents that just doesn't want our kids to feel that bad. We just don't want them to feel that bad, especially about, and you live in a world that for sure is committed to making sure your kids don't feel bad about themselves. I remember, yeah, one of our kids, their team got blown out recently in a sport, and, and they were talking about, yeah, the refs, and, you know, the team was this, and I said, you know, they were just a lot better than y'all. It's super simple. I, was, I watched the whole thing. It didn't take me, and, it, and I told them it didn't take me long. Like five, ten minutes in, I'm like, wow, they're a lot better than us. That's why you got blown away. They're really good. You're really not. And it's okay. It's okay to be a loser. It's okay for other people to be better than you. Like, it's okay to, but then most importantly, as we'll get to in a minute, that leads you somewhere. It doesn't leave, it doesn't sit you there wallowing in it. But rather, it's all this law is a servant to salvation. All of it God is using just to drive people to the cross. It throws that mirror of the law, that diagnostic of sin in front and goes, look, something is deeply wrong. And when it comes to the very end of all things, you're going to lose big time. You're going to lose your life. You're going to lose your soul. The stakes are so much higher than a soccer game. And so you need to see how deep the trouble is. And now we... We don't just pedal to the metal like every day of every month of every year, but again, we want to be careful not to exasperate or just to demean. But we do want the law to sort of be free to do some of its work where our kids start to say, okay, the, the issue is in here. Because there's the seventh right use of the law as a servant of salvation, revealing our need for a savior and for salvation, holding us in custody until a savior can come, satisfy the law, redeem us from its penalty. So Galatians 3, turn there if you would, Galatians 3, 21 through 29, where Paul is reflecting on all the various commandments and laws of the Old Testament, how he wouldn't have known even in Romans 7 what sin was without the law. Because if there's something the nation of Israel should have taken away from their time at Sinai, 
It's, oh, we have no business walking up the mountain of God without help. Just that he would say, hey, make sure, put a marker around Sinai so that no person or beast touch the mountain. Because if they touch it, they're going to die. I mean, that's big time. That's not, he didn't say if they touch God, they're going to die. No, if they touch the mountain where I'm dwelling, they die. So every Israelite was meant to go, okay, this is serious. This is big. So Paul says in Galatians 3.21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under, until the coming faith would be revealed. See one of the themes? Verse 22, imprisoned. Verse 23, captive, imprisoned. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. Baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs, heirs according to the promise. So there's Paul helping us understand how are we meant to relate to the law. Well, for the unbeliever, and so for our unbelieving children, it imprisons them. It takes them captive. It serves as a guardian until the Spirit comes, softens their heart, shows them their need for Christ. They repent, they believe. They're born again, and now they're moved out from under that guardian and set free to live by grace. And essentially, it's why if you have kids in your home that some are not believers and others are, it's actually meant to be a different kind of relationship, a different kind of parenting conversation. Because there's a way in which the law is meant to be functioning in the life of that unbelieving child, and it's not to be functioning the same way to your 17-year-old whose faith is in Christ. And so that conversation is meant to be, okay, this, I'm talking to a Christian here, and how the law, they're not meant to use that to commend themselves to God. They're not meant to use that and be trapped under as if they're still captive to it, as if they're trying to earn God's love and pleasure by keeping it. At the same time, those kids who are still under the law, okay, we're not trying to alleviate the weight of it for them. But rather we're saying, hey, just this again shows your need for Christ, your need for a redeemer, because you can't do it on your own. And that's why this is really important as we parent our kids and interact with them around rules and right and wrong. We don't want to interact with them as if they're capable of doing it. Okay, here's right, here's wrong, here's what you're called upon to do, um, and I'm not sure if you can because this is probably more than anything just going to reveal how much you need Christ, how much you, you need him to give you a new heart, not just to fulfill the law on your behalf, pay its penalty, but now give you a new heart that actually wants to love God and wants to love others. 
So that's what I mean by the law then is good if we use it lawfully as a servant to salvation. That's how Paul saw it. But then when salvation comes, that relationship to the law changes. So any questions before we get to the next section or comments or reflections? I know that was a lot. How do you see that fleshing out in your homes right now? Do you, how do you see yourself using rules and laws and right and wrong? Yeah, where yeah, they whether that's they reach a certain age where they're just into everything, every cabinet, every table, every and they gravitate to the things that you're most not wanting them to touch. I actually remember being over at a friend's house when their their son at the time was maybe three, three and a half, and had discovered the glory of potted plants in the house. Um, and and just thought it's like a little personal sandbox. And so they, had to, they enacted a rule, no touching the dirt in plants, like in the home. And I remember being over there and just sitting, and we were talking, and the, the, their son came through the living room, was kind of walking over here, and there's a potted plant in the corner. He was going from here through this door, and as he's walking, it was like there was a Star Wars, like Death Star tractor beam you know, that sucked in the Millennium Falcon, that it, like, as he's walking, he gets parallel to that plant, you just see him go. He just stops, he's just looking. And he doesn't think we can see him, because Jack and I are both kind of just corner of our eyes. And he goes. And he looks back. And then, like, his hand goes out. And it's, it's like 10 feet away. But there's, there's just... And you can see the wrestle, the war going on in there. And now there's a time then to say, okay, no, or to warn, but, but there's also an art of just redirection. Sometimes as a parent, it's okay, part of how I might spare him here is just redirect him to, hey, Dalton, come over here a minute, let's do this. And so you want to look for ways with your kids where you can redirect, where you can sort of provide another road that's relational and enjoyable and isn't just no, 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 but instead, okay, yes, 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 here, here, here. That's why it's interesting in Genesis too when God said, you know, Adam, of of all the trees of the garden you can eat freely. That's a statement we don't think about much. Part of the struggle with Adam is their refusal to be satisfied in all the things they could do. All the trees of the garden. Enjoy all of them. And I bet there weren't, it, it probably wasn't just seven there probably were hundreds. All these trees enjoy freely, just not this one. And so sometimes, especially with young children, we found with our kids when they were small, there's a lot of redirecting. Okay, because I can tell they're struggling, the tractor beam's on, they're being drawn in, 
let's just playfully pick them up, do something, move them over here, and get them active in another thing. Now, you don't do that every time, but just if you find yourself in a lot of no, 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 is, okay, how do we create more yes, yes, yes? And literally redirect them to it and pick them up and get them in it and help them see the good of the good, not just the bad of the bad. Because yeah. it is a hard stage, and those are hard seasons where you're just like, man, everything is a fight. Every step. Yeah, Dan. I mean, that's, and that's where, especially for grown kids, every parent, parents have to decide, okay, at what point are we belaboring something? It's been said. We've been clear. Same with evangelism with friends or that it, at some point it's simply my own obsession that is driving the conversation. My own fears, my own worries, my own sense of um, guilt or shame that just keeps rehashing. And so I think there's places where we're like, okay, we've had the conversation. The things have been said that needs to be said. Now how do we just enjoy their company? How do we just talk about the, the range of things that we can talk about that is common ground, that are shared interests? Um, and so I think there is a, just a place for that part where we're just, where we, we're just friendly and, and can have a friendship there that isn't rooted in Christ, but the, the hope that it will be someday. Um, and so I think that's, and that's the hard line where we just have to pray for wisdom. Lord, what does it mean to actually discipline, to teach, to train, but not provoke to anger? Ephesians 6. Knowing that, okay, of all the things God could say to fathers, he said that one. So there must be something in me that just wants to hammer it until it yields, rather than, okay, teach, train, pray, and leave room for God to have to work. Because um, there's, would you be satisfied as a parent if your kid came to believe Christ and gave you all the credit for it? Or would that show they didn't quite understand how this worked? Um, because because it was, we gave no room for God to really work, for his word to really work, because we were so loud in the dynamic of it. Um, and so I think we all have to re try to learn and pray for, okay, where, and that's where it's great to, if as husband or wife, you're able to give feedback there, where you see your spouse, or your spouse letting you know where they see you, like beating that dead horse and just belaboring the point. Um, when the point's been made. Yeah. I think there is an importance of just this section of guarding against legalism and bitterness. And what that means is trying to change our children through their adherence to rules. Just know rules will not, it can modify behavior, but it doesn't change people. It won't change their heart. Like only God can do that. And so what rules are meant to do is help them see their need for somebody to change them. Help them see the glory of the one who would like to change them, but the rules won't change them. I've 
thought, it's amazing, just all the different structures and systems we'd have, we've had over the years for cleaning rooms. One thing has never happened, and that is the transformation of the person who lives in that room to actually value cleaning the room. So whatever that is, the rules haven't helped. The charts, the stars, the stickers. Though it changed some behavior, but it never changed their value for it. And so we noticed because it never translated to any other area of sanitary life. You know. And so again, it's not wrong to have those things. That's fine to have that, just knowing those structures don't change the heart. And so don't try to use them to do that. Or condemning our children through their defiance of rules rather than God's grace. Yeah, it's tempting to think that if we just help them feel bad enough, if they just feel ashamed or guilty enough, though we're not saying, I just want to feel shame. There's, there's times where we'll bring a degree of tone and force where we're like, I want them to feel bad. Um, and it's different to say, I hope and pray they feel conviction, but conviction is a work of the spirit. Condemnation is a work of the, of the flesh, unless it's someone who's trapped under sin and condemned. And so that's one of the questions that I think is worth asking our kids as they get older, is are you learning to tell the difference between conviction and condemnation? And how do you tell if you just feel condemned versus you feel convicted? Expecting our children to accomplish holiness rather than God's grace having to accomplish that holiness? I just think within how we apply right, wrong, and rules over the years, we want to be careful in giving the sense that we expect them to do this, meaning expect them to accomplish it, expect them to be perfected in their own work. Or looking to our children to provide emotional comfort and spiritual assurance through their outward performance. This is probably one of the biggest ones for all of us, right? is, you know, you start, your kids start like obeying and following and just something feels so warm and cozy inside. Like, okay, it's, it's working. It's paying off, return on investment. There is this reward, sense of emotional, spiritual reward in us when we see our kids obeying. Now, this is different than when John says, I have no greater joy than this than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There's something that's meant to be good about that. But there's a line where we start using our kids to provide comfort, a sense of peace, or a sense of our own validation as a parent is going to be measured by how obedient our kids are. When you don't know what kind of kids the Lord's going to give you at different seasons of your life. And so they're not necessarily going to be the barometer of your parenting. There should be other measures of that. And so looking to our children to provide that rather than God's grace providing it. Or protecting our children by inventing a myriad of rules and laws to live by rather than God's grace. This is what the Pharisees and Sadducees did, right? All these traditions, lines and lines of traditions that are meant to remove someone like 18 degrees from the real sin. So this kind of washing of hands, this kinds of plucking of grain, this kinds of wearing of your clothes, and 
And again, it was just traditions. And so we want to make sure in our homes to help our kids know the difference between a doctrine of God and a tradition of man. It doesn't mean you can't have traditions. It just means we don't teach those as if they're laws of God. And that becomes an important distinction. I remember like there was a season where we had kids just sort of sneaking into the kitchen and getting snacks. And it, we, we were wondering, why aren't they eating much at meals? Like, I thought they were hungry. And then we would just be finding wrappers. And so I remember being tempted going, okay, nobody can be in the kitchen ever. <laughs> just, let's just cut it off. Just the, see, there's, and it's wonderfully demarcated with these kitchen tiles. If you're under the age of 20, you may not touch these tiles. It'll solve the problem, right? Then the fridge is in the kitchen, the pantry's in the kitchen, stuff on the counter's in the kitchen. And, and so it's tempting to just start creating rules and the, just, okay. If, but then what do you find with that? Well, then you just got to do more. Okay, now no, nobody can be in the two rooms that are connected to the kitchen. All right, okay, actually nobody can be downstairs. You just have to climb in and out of your window. And just it keeps, keeps going. And so we want to be careful about how many rules we create and make sure are these really necessary or is it just convenient for me? Does it, is this just me trying to make my life easier so that I don't have to deal with them? So I don't have to have the hard conversations. So I don't have to, when I find the wrapper, sit down and go, all right, let's talk about what this is exposed, what this is yeah, just let's put the mirror up and see our need for Christ. So there's something about just the, the expediency of rules that we love. And we'll use rules to replace us. Does that make sense, what I mean by that? We'll use rules to replace the conversation, to replace the covenantal relationship that you know, God has with his people. And just to save time. To make everything black and white so nobody has to think. So nobody has to relate their way through it. Nobody has to pray for that wisdom. I remember having a, years ago, having a family in, in my office. And I was meeting with a couple. But then they had a, little, a son that was probably almost four. Um, yeah, three, three and a half. And so we were sitting in this one little area. And then I had my desk chair over here. And... And it's this big desk chair, and man, it could spin so fast. And it just, I don't know what the ball bearings were in that thing, but it was like NASA put it together or something, because it, it could generate some orbital heat. And this, and he figured it out, man. And he's just over there, just. And, and the dad and the mom, at different times, every few they would say, they would call him and say, hey, we'd rather you didn't do that. And there's a parenting tip. Don't, is it either, is it a rule or a suggestion? I mean, are you laying down law here or are you just giving some advice? Because if it's just a suggestion, just no, they're not going to adhere to it. And so just make sure you're clear what you're doing. And, and so, yeah, and then they'd go pick him up and take him over here and then he'd go back, then they'd say this and you can tell they're just uncomfortable and and so at one point it stopped. I said, just so you all know, this doesn't bother me at all. 
I mean, I just want now, if it bothers you, that's fine. If, if you'd like him to not do it, but just from my standpoint, so you guys know it, I don't, I don't care. If he spins it, if it hits a wall, if it hits the desk, um, it's fine. And I say, but, but do you want him to do this or not? Do you think this is wise or not? And he said, well, I don't, yeah, we don't want him to do it. Okay, then my encouragement would be, and it was a young family, this was their first kid. And so we, and this is where we all need parenting discipleship. Like we all need those individuals in our lives. And Ruth and I had it. All, every season of our kid's life, we had people around us who were like, okay, help us think this through. What do we do? And so they were asking for help. I said, well, number one, if, if you've decided this is a wrong right now for him to do, you don't want to, then you need to make that clear. You need to actually say, son, you may not do this. In the moment that comes out of your mouth, it's law. Write it in stone. It's no longer a suggestion. And now that it's come out of your mouth, you got to enforce it. And we talked about, so therefore, be careful about all the rules you create. Because when you create it, it's on. And you don't want to have a dynamic where you create lots of rules you don't enforce. And therefore, you want to be careful how many unnecessary rules you make up. Just because I just don't like the look of the chair spinning. Or I'm afraid it may hit something when... Now, I'm all for you go to somebody's house, you want to help honor that place. But I'm, that's why with sitting with me, hey, this doesn't bother me at all. If it hits stuff, whatever, so I'm good with it. But they weren't. But then at that moment, we have to navigate. Okay, how do we write wrong rules? What line do we want to put in the sand? Knowing that, okay, once we do, we got to follow through. Unless we want our kids to grow up thinking that laws don't matter. Rules don't matter. God's law doesn't matter. And that's why you'll see on the last page there just a few practical suggestions. We won't have time to go through those, but... And that's part of number three, just avoid creating lots of arbitrary rules to simply make your life easier as a parent. Because trust me, it won't make your life easier as a parent. It'll make it a lot harder. It will create an overwhelming weight for everyone, a suffocating atmosphere. But any final comment or question before we wrap up? All right. Yeah, and I think, and even when I think about it as a church, I, I pray and I hope as a church we would have an atmosphere where no parent would be embarrassed or ashamed of the outbursts of their kids, whatever form that would take. And I don't think it should surprise any of us, ever. Like, a kid melts down. Yeah, that makes sense. I do that too still, just internally. But... But I think what we're after is, okay, as parents, are, are we dealing with it? Are we prayerfully, humbly? And so then that becomes where we all need help, is we need help not with keeping our kids under control 
in the sense of none of it gets out or keeping everything as making ourselves look good, but rather, okay, how do we, are we learning together to, to actually parent our children? So that's what would, would more concern me in my own life is if I'm not dealing with it. It's one thing for the meltdown to happen. It's another thing for me to ignore it or to not try or to not. So that's, a whole, that's really the bigger issue. Is as parents, are we, are we trying to address things? Are we prayerfully? That was Eli with his sons, right? He just wasn't addressing it. That was the problem, not God going, hey, Eli, I expect you to fix your sons and make them not sinners. No, you're not even confronting them. And so I think, yeah, as a church, even as a community, we hope and pray that there'd be an atmosphere where kids get to be kids and stuff gets flying all over the place. But then as parents, we're now responding in a Christ-centered way to what's happening. Let me pray. Well, Lord, help us. Have mercy. Give grace. May your word control us and govern us. May your spirit lead us and help us. Uh, May you equip us well as parents and as friends to one another as we parent. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks, y'all.